Action series of podcasts is proudly supported by Arc Maths. That's Arc with a C. Now, over the course of these nine episodes, you'll be hearing about cutting edge research and its application to the classroom. And that is exactly what Arc Maths is all about. The ArcMaths app makes use of research into retrieval, testing, spacing and interleaving to design a personalised practice programme for each of your students that stops them forgetting the things they once knew. It strengthens their recall of core math skills and knowledge and keeps students systematically practising previous topics so you can teach new ones. There's no teaching element to it, it's just designed to support your teaching through regular recapping. On top of this, there is a brilliant handwriting recognition tool that can even cope with my dodgy scribbles and you can annotate the pictures and write on the working out screen. Unsurprisingly, the app has been shortlisted for Educational App of the Year at the 2021 BET Awards. Teachers can have a go with the ArcMaths app for free if they get in contact and mention the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. It's currently available for iPads, but phone and other tablet versions will be available from September. So just drop them an email at hello at arceducation.co.uk or contact them via the website. And there's links to both of those things in the show notes. And remember, that's Arc with a C, not a K. So, welcome to Season 2 of my Research in Action mini-series, where I interview researchers from Loughborough University's Centre for Mathematical Cognition about their chosen areas of interest and the implications for teachers in the classroom. And I try my very best not to come across completely out of my depth. Episode 6 features the wonderful Colin Foster. Colin's a former maths teacher who's now a reader in mathematics education at the Mathematics Education Centre in Loughborough. He's an author, has written numerous research papers, is the creator of three outstanding websites, Foster 77, Mathematical Etudes and Mathematical Beginnings, and is simply someone who is very nice to talk to about a whole manner of things. And that's exactly what we did. We discuss Colin's work at Loughborough, being the next MA president, what does understanding mean, the legendary Don Stewart, mathematical etudes, and then we turned our attention to the main area of discussion, the forthcoming Lumen Mathematics curriculum. Just how do you go about writing a maths curriculum from scratch? What do you include? What do you leave out? What challenges do you face? And how do you hope teachers will use it? For anyone who's currently wrestling with tweaking, rewriting or completely overhauling their schemes of work, this should prove fascinating listening. It's also worth mentioning that this is Colin's second appearance on the show. He first came on way back in 2017 where we discussed task design and problem solving and it remains one of my favourite episodes. But I tell you what, you are going to absolutely love this one. So without further ado, let's get cracking. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Right, it gives me great pleasure to welcome back one of my favourite people, um, Colin Foster, to the podcast. Hello, Colin. Hi, thank you. Hi, good to be here. 
It's great to have you back, Colin. I always I always recommend people check out the first interview I did with you back on the show years ago now, where we talked about problem solving and we went really deep into that. A really, really good conversation. And I think we're going to have another good one today because I've got lots of things I want to want to talk to you about. Uh, first off, I just wanted to touch upon the keynote that you did at the recent MA conference where you spoke about um, understanding and what it means to understand something. Particularly, uh, you looked at Pythagoras and, and also the notion of odd and even numbers and so on. My first question to you, Colin, why choose that as a subject? Because it feels that it's quite, it's quite a, a big, quite bold choice to pick something as, as quite, I guess, controversial might even be the word, as, as, as understanding something. What, what brought about that choice? Well, I guess I think plenaries are an opportunity sometimes to ask big questions, bigger questions than I think I know the answer to, but to maybe just to, to raise it, to talk about. I mean, I often hear teachers talking about teaching with understanding as, as the kind of raison d'etre that's the thing we want to do and I certainly I sort of identify with that but I think often it's just used as a sort of buzz phrase but what does it really mean and sometimes uh, I get a sense that kids are criticized for not really doing things with understanding and they're doing things maybe getting them right but are they doing them with understanding and I'm, I'm just trying to raise the issue of what do we really mean by that what what does it mean does it even mean anything because um, in some situations it's hard to really pin down what what that difference is. It's it's an interesting one. I um I recently had uh, Anne Watson and, and Chris Bolton on the podcast, and your your plenary was fresh in my mind. And we were talking about Pythagoras, funnily enough. And I was trying to present to Anne and Chris a situation where you could have a child who could get everything right that they needed to do with regard to Pythagoras' theorem for the GCSE. So they could they could find missing lengths on right angle triangles, but they could also do the contextual problems. They could also spot a Pythagoras question when it was lurking in some other thing. But if you ask them, why does Pythagoras work or, or prove Pythagoras or do you understand, or what is Pythagoras' theorem? They didn't really have a have a kind of deep understanding of it, and I said I was trying to trying to get across to to, to Alan and Chris or present that. W- would that be a problem? Could they pitch a, stu- a student like that? Well, what's your take on that, Colin? First, can, can you imagine a child where that could be a, a scenario, and and is that a problem? Yeah, and so that's really what I was trying to raise. I think in the plenary, the idea that um, what does it mean to understand? Because you can know a proof. And you can know several proofs and be able to reconstruct them or explain them or draw pictures about them. And often I think what that boils down to is knowing that something's true and seeing that it's definitely true and it's going to be true in all cases. And uh, I think that proofs often convince without necessarily explaining. And sometimes the explaining becomes like, how does the proof work and why is the proof correct? And that's important as well. But that's not still quite the same as seeing why is the result true? And so I think people sometimes assume that a proof does the job. But of course, you can memorize a proof. You can reproduce a proof that you, in some sense, don't understand. And there's also this issue about what if you did understand it once, but now you've kind of, you've forgotten. You can't reproduce that proof that you saw years ago mm. on demand. Uh, or what if you can on some days, but another day, you know, you've just got off an airplane, you're exhausted, and, you know, you can't reproduce it at that point. Does that mean you don't understand anymore? Is that understanding gone? And I think understanding just gets used in a, in a bit of a sloppy way sometimes, and it's not really clear what exactly we mean. Uh, so, yeah, I do think that there's, that there's an issue there that sometimes maybe even students 
uh, we lead students to expect the impossible. So uh, students who uh, maybe understand something as well as I do um, think they don't understand because they don't really see why it happens. And they sort of get switched off because they think, uh, I'm not understanding in the way that other people are, but actually maybe there's a sort of awe and wonder and mystery about some things in maths. And that's, again, why I picked Pythagoras' theorem. Um, and perhaps just recognizing that and admitting that and saying, yeah, this is this is a surprising result, and that surprise perhaps isn't going to go away, and maybe it shouldn't go away, um, and we can enjoy that and and accept that, and not feel that that's a evidence of of some problem that we don't understand. So do you think, Colin, that there's possibly an an over reliance on on proof in mathematics particularly i'm thinking high school secondary school mathematics and this is just something i was thinking of as a result of your talk that that's always my kind of go to to understand it you've got to be able to to prove it but again as as you've pointed out you can memorize proofs you can regurgitate a proof without having a flipping clue what on earth is going on with it or you can forget proofs do, do you think we we over rely on proofs with particularly kind of um, age 11 proof, to 16 I, I don't think proofs feature that prominently in the secondary curriculum at least as i you know i only see a few classrooms and a few schools but i think that um sometimes the the skills that you need to understand a proof are quite different from the skills that you need then to use the result so if you're i don't know if you're doing angles on a straight line uh, or angles in a triangle uh, the proof of angles in a triangle requires understanding of maybe alternate angles or something like that. But then once the students get on to doing some questions, it's kind of number bonds to 180. It's very different skills that that are perhaps going to be used. And so you can you can imagine the teacher thinking, I'm spending a long time uh, talking about ideas here and discussing things that actually, if the student's don't follow any of this, they're still going to be able to do the questions, they're still going to be able to do the and apply the result. So I think there's often a disconnect between the skills you need uh, to prove something or to understand a proof and what you need to use it. And I think that can sometimes lead to a sort of a, um, a break in the lesson where the teacher has spent a lot of time proving something, but then the students think actually the takeaway message um, it's just that we need to add these things up to get 180. <laughs> or you're doing indices and you're spending ages actually thinking about why the, the rules work, but then the takeaway is we just add the numbers. And so I think the students can sometimes feel, what was the point of all that? We didn't need any of that. Um, and I think we need we do need tasks which kind of bridge that gap a little bit better. The, the other thing, I well, there was many things I found interesting, was um, your point you made about demonstrations, how demonstrations might are definitely not proofs, but they may serve a really important purpose in, in the sense that they're quite memorable and they help students get a grasp of what this thing mm. is and, and help it resonate with them. It, it, do, you want to, do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Well, yeah, I, think I, th so. I think that's something that I, I've, I've kind of, I think I've, I've underused demonstrations in the last few years. Yeah, I think that kids often like them. And I think teachers sort of feel guilty about using them sometimes. They think, oh, this isn't proper maths. But I think sometimes one of the barriers is that you're, you're dealing with something and do the students even know what the thing is that we're trying to prove? And I think sometimes demonstrations like one of the ones I shared in the plenary was that a water one with Pythagoras' theorem where the, the two squares on the legs are filled with water and as you rotate the triangle, that water pours into the square on the hypotenuse and fills it up. And of course, that's that's just one triangle and we can only see that it's approximately true for that one triangle. But I think it does make very visual and very memorable what exactly the theorem is claiming. And so... 
students might say, oh, yeah, there's something to do with squares. But when they've seen that, they think, yeah, those two squares, all of that area has to fill up the other square. And I think to have that as a prelude to a proof, so uh, a proof like Euclid's proof literally does that. It takes the two areas and it squashes them up and fits them into the square on the hypotenuse. And I, I think that I think there's value in those sorts of demonstrations. And I wouldn't want to, uh, to to feel bad about using them. Absolutely. Particularly now we've got things like JoJabra and Desmos and, this, and and also people who are so talented to create these visual animations and so on. It's There's never been a better time to do demonstrations as a maths teacher because you're not limited now to just having to bring in actual apparatus yourself. You can call up videos and animations on everything. It, it seems criminal not to use them, doesn't Absolutely, it? To, to, yes. to, as you say, it's a, perhaps a starting point to help students get to grips with an idea. Um, yes, the, so. the, well, there's many things I want to talk to you about here. The other one, Colin, is, of course, congratulations. I, I wasn't aware that you're going to be MA president, not this current cycle, but but next. That, that's quite an honour, isn't it? Oh, thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm president um, uh, designate, I think it's called now, so for a year. So uh, uh, Hannah Fry's just finished and Chris Pritchard is now the president of the MA for the following year. And then I, I'll take it on in uh, the next conference, the next annual conference next year. So, yeah, I've got a year to think about it and try and watch Chris very closely and see what he does and uh, try and figure out what I'm, what I'm supposed to be doing. Any any good perks or anything to, to that job? Uh, I don't or think what so. Are you getting for not, that? not yet, but uh, we'll see see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens. That's brilliant. Um, the other thing, before we talk on, on the main thing that I want to speak about, the other thing I just wanted to mention is, is your mathematical etudes. Now, I, I make a point anytime I do a talk about problem solving or practice to always direct people uh, to these. I just wondered, for, for, for the benefit of listeners who perhaps aren't aware of them, do you want to just give a quick overview about, of what you consider to be a mathematical uh, etude? And then we'll just dig a little bit deeper into that, if that's okay. Yeah, I think that might lead on to the curriculum in a way, because my journey as, a, as an educational designer sort of began with seeing myself as a task designer. And I kind of thought of, of those two things as being the same, really. If you're interested in designing materials for classrooms, then you're a task designer. And I think that that's expanded a bit over the years. So so originally, I thought of tasks as, as kind of rich, open-ended tasks that students can do. And those tended to be either enrichment or things that maybe came towards the end of a unit of work after students had developed some skills and, and knowledge about the topic, and then they could apply it and do some interesting investigative tasks and I suppose it just occurred to me gradually that uh, a lot of the time that's taken up in maths lessons is spent developing those those procedural skills the fluency in those skills and uh, I wasn't really addressing that at all and I was assuming that well we have exercises and so you can use exercises for that and that's that's a solved problem and I was interested in what happened after those skills have been developed and, and using them uh, mathematically but then I thought well that's that's actually leaving a lot of the lesson to to be uh, given over potentially to to exercises which often students find dull and interesting uh, monotonous and perhaps sort of brain switches off and, and not much gets learnt and so what the etudes are trying to do and this is kind of built on the idea of musical etudes uh, which are, are pieces of music that are written in order to develop a specific uh, technical skill in the musician um, but they're beautiful pieces of music and you might listen to them for pleasure without even knowing that they were designed as as with that technical purpose in mind and so i was thinking about uh, the idea of musical etudes and could you have something similar um, for mathematics could you have a task which was uh, 
specifically geared to developing one particular technical skill that's, that's an important skill to develop, but within a more stimulating, rich kind of context. So that if you already are really good at that skill, uh, it's not boring because there's lots to investigate and explore. But if you're still developing that skill, then it just sort of helps you along the way, but within a bigger context. And I think there's all kinds of advantages to doing that because if the, the questions are connected through being part of a bigger problem, then there's all the sort of self-checking and, and noticing patterns and connections that goes on all the time and sort of links with variation theory there, I think. Um, but I mean, if you're just beginning and all your working memory is being taken up thinking about how to perform the task, then that's fine. And you start off like that. And as, as your fluency develops, you can more and more think about the wider problem. And uh, there's a sort of a natural natural shift from the specifics of, of performing the task to thinking more broadly about the, the problem. Um, I've just made a video actually about uh, etudes for someone who's not come across them before, and it's one of the videos on the the Lumen website. That uh, uh, Lumen is the the, the, the network uh, for teachers that we have at Loughborough, and uh, all the videos are on there are, are absolutely free. And uh, I've just put that one up. Fantastic! Yeah, I was going to mention the um, the, the the Lumen CPD, so I'll, I'll make a note just to come back to that as well. So I definitely want to draw people's attention to that. Uh, just just another thing on the etudes. Um, my, I mean, I I love all of them. My all time favourite of yours is the enlargement one. I absolutely love that one about whether it fits on the page or not. I think that's that's brilliant because. The way I've taught, well, practiced enlargement in the past has been boring as anything. It's just let's keep enlarging shapes. That's that's all you can really do with it. And maybe you can link to, you know, area scale factor and so on if you're being a bit adventurous. But the fact that you're getting all that practice of trying to find all the different places where the shape remains on the page, and then you've got the little twist of what happens to all those center of enlargements and stuff is, is, is fantastic. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But I wonder, have you, have you done any recent ones, Colin? Well, when was the last time you wrote an etude? Have you got any kind of favorites from the last year or so that you've... you've uh, there are quite a few. Um, I mean, some of them are not original to me. They're things that are out there and people know these tasks, but I suppose it's a particular way of using them, which I think... Um, focuses on the fluency. I mean, there's, there's one I use quite often, which is just, uh, you know, what's the biggest number that you can make using the digits one to nine once each um, as a product. So you make two numbers from the digits one to nine um, and multiplying together what's the biggest number you can make. And you could do that with a calculator. And you could say that's a task about place value and about understanding the positions of digits. And that's absolutely fine, but that wouldn't be an etude. And I think if you do that task without a calculator where there's a, a method you want students to, to rehearse, to, to perform the multiplications, then for me, that's an etude because you're, uh, you're generating lots and lots of practice, but you're also caring about the answers because you're trying to make the biggest possible number. And if your answer comes out 10 times too big because you've made a mistake, you're going to notice that the person next to you is going to challenge you about it and say, no way, you didn't get that. And so it's within an environment where the answers actually matter for something. It's not like the page of exercises where you work out an answer and then straight away go on to the next question that you can think about what it might mean. Um, but at the same time, you generate loads and loads of, of practice and it's kind of less painful practice because there's kind of some purpose behind it. And, uh, and as, as the fluency develops, you get better and better at doing that procedure. You're thinking now not about how on earth do I multiply these two numbers, but you're thinking where do these digits need to go? What's going to happen if I swap those two digits around? Is it going to get bigger or smaller? Um, and so I think um, that's, that's the sort of task I'm talking about. So yeah, I'm still writing them. There's a website, mathematicalatudes.com, and I keep uh, adding more onto there. So I think that's the place to go if people want want more of those sorts of tasks. 
Fantastic. And, and in your kind of, for want of a better phrase, model of, of, of teaching and, and, and learning, is there still a role, if you've got the etude in there, is there still a role for fluency practice? And is there still a role for kind of more open-ended problem solving? And if so, where, where do they fit in? Yeah, well, I think it is fluency practice. And so I would say that, you know, if you introduce a, a topic, say it's how to multiply two numbers together using a standard algorithm, then the point at which you would say, now here's a page of questions, just get some practice on this. Why not instead just use use the etude task? I don't think you necessarily need to do a page of exercises before the task. Uh, I mean, it's up to the teacher's judgment, isn't it? Are the kids ready for that? But I think often the, the, the difference between starting an etude um, and starting a page of exercises is almost nothing. So like in that enlargement task you mentioned, um, so the task there is you've got a triangle drawn on a grid and the task is where can the center of enlargement be so that the image triangle is completely on the grid. Um, it, you know, If a child says, oh, I don't know what to do, I'm stuck, the teacher can literally just put a dot anywhere on the grid and say, use, use that as the center, see what happens. And if it goes off the grid, that's just as useful information as if it doesn't go off the grid. Um, and the teacher might want to pick a point where they know it will go on the grid, but but still, you've 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 reduced that to an exercise. Then it's exactly the same as the question one in the book, which says enlarge this shape about the center of enlargement. So I think any child who can do that question can do that etude, and they might need that little prompt from the teacher where they say, "If you're not sure how to start, start with this point," and then when they've done that, you say, "Now choose another point." It's a really low ramp up into the problem solving side of that. And so I find it hard to see why any child would not be able to begin that task if they, you know, if they can do the procedure well enough to do exercises on it. So I've tried to sell the etudes as alternatives to exercises because, you know, teachers don't need us to suggest more extra things they can do in all that spare time we know that no one has in, in the busy curriculum. And I think if we, if we, propose tasks and say you know when you've got a spare lesson sometime or when you've got a spare bit of time why not do this task that inevitably those tasks will hardly get used so the idea of the atriums really was to replace exercises and to say you know use this as an alternative it won't take you any more time maybe it will be of more efficient use of time and you're developing that fluency alongside other important skills that that kids need as a mathematician now i'm not sure whether that's going to be true in every topic area and so mm -hmm. um so far, I think that there's a potentially an etude solution to every fluency challenge, but uh, I await <laughs> situations where someone says, no, actually, you can't do that for this topic. I'll tell you what I, f I find interesting, Colin. So I, I would have two things that, that I use, which are fairly similar to etudes, one which I call purposeful practice and also my use of what I call intelligent practice, make, making use of relationships between questions. But still, I'll find myself wanting to use a bit of what, what I would call fluency practice for, for two reasons, really. Um, one is often an advantage of fluency practice or, or any practice where the teacher has decided the questions the students answer in advance. One obvious advantage of that is that everybody's working on the same questions. So two kids next to each other can keep checking with each other whether they're going in the right, whether one's making a mistake, if they've got the same answers or different. And the teacher can wander around and they know what answers to expect. So if any child's going wrong, they can get onto it quicker. As opposed to when students are perhaps coming up with their own examples, you may have 30 kids all doing slightly different things and it becomes a lot more difficult practically to, to pick up on, on mistakes. But the second one, the second reason I'll often revert to fluency practice, I think is, is sometimes overlooked. And that is 
the teacher has control over the choice of examples, so can use their experience to make sure the examples that the students practice are ones that cover as kind of wider domain of the the uh, concept as possible. So you want students, if we're doing enlargement, you want them to try the center of enlargement when it's in the center of the shape. You want them to try it when it's on the edge of the shape. When they're doing multiplication, you want to make sure they have a zero in there somewhere to make sure they don't mess that up. So I often think that that's some advantage of fluency practice that's often overlooked. The fact that you've got this checking mechanism and the fact that as a teacher, you can use your experience to choose examples that will really test students' understanding. Mm. I don't know if you've any thoughts thoughts on that at all. Yeah, I think you raised some good points. I think the first one about the checking answers can be a real problem with some etudes. If you say everybody make up one of these, then you're frantically rushing around the room trying to see if they're, if they're right. <laughs> yeah. um, everybody make up a quadratic that factorizes. That's really hard work. Um, I suppose there are solutions <laughs> yeah. to that where you get children checking each other's and then uh, sure. that sort of thing. But I think with some of the etudes, that isn't a problem at all. So like with the enlargement one, um, I know and can actually see from a long way across the classroom what that region is that the, the centre of enlargement needs to be in. I, I know where it is in relation to the triangle. And so I can see at a glance, I can look down a whole row of students doing something. I can see who's got that area and who hasn't. Um, and so it's actually really quick and easy to check, much easier than it would be if they were all doing a page of questions and then someone's on question yes. three, someone's on question five. Yeah. I've got to have answers in my hand and keep looking at them. Um, similarly, with the multiplication of two numbers to make the biggest possible product, uh, all I've got to memorize is what is the biggest possible product. Or actually, I remember what the two numbers are. Or if you just remember one yes. of them, then the other one is obvious. And so I can see as I go around where the students have got that or whether they've got a close one or not. And because everybody's aiming for the same thing, different students will challenge each other. And so what you can do with that task, instead of asking them uh, how they got it, you just ask them to write the, the product, the answer to the product on the board. And then if anyone's got a bigger one, they go and write it above it. And then people say, how did you get that? And then some people eventually decide, actually, that one you can't get. There was a mistake in it. And so I think there's a kind of collective um, atmosphere in which people... Uh, they don't want other people to have a bigger product and so they're going to challenge it and and uh there are some surprises in that where you think you've got the biggest possible one and actually there's a slightly bigger one you can get by switching some digits around and um so i, I think the checking of answers is, is really easy in those cases but i do accept that in other cases it might not be um i think the other point is is a bit more worrying for me which is about the uh the wide domain um and certainly with that task, say the enlargement task, you're moving the center of enlargement around. You could potentially do the task again with a different scale factor, but there are things you're not getting like negative scale factors. Um, and so uh, I suppose you could do the task with a negative scale factor, but I think maybe you need a different task um, to address that. So I think no task is ever going to address every possible Thing that could happen um, and again i think your point about the having a zero when you're multiplying is a good one and so that task doesn't cover that and so i guess any task has its has its limits sure that's a good point but it doesn't mean to me necessarily that you couldn't design a different etude that would have zeros in it and, and do something interesting with that no, I agree. I agree. It's, it's just always something I, I think about. It's, it's fluency practice often either gets dismissed or it's just like, it's almost like a qualifying thing students have to go through to then do the more interesting task. But I, I just think there are some advantages of fluency practice that often potentially get, get a bit overlooked. Um, my kind of follow-up question, Colin, is 
Is there something that comes after an etude? Is there still room in your way of thinking for more kind of open-ended investigative tasks or, or will the etude sort that out as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I see that, you know, the three aims of the national curriculum with problem solving as the, the peak, the pinnacle for me. And I think it's the pinnacle of the pyramid in the sense that that's what, that's what maths is about ultimately is about being able to solve problems. Mm. But I don't think it's necessarily the thing that most of classroom time can be spent on. Um, and so I see it as the ultimate aim. So the purpose of, of learning maths is not to be able to do etudes. Um, you know, they're a means to an end. And so for me, the etudes develop the fluency that enables you then to go on and solve more uh, open-ended problems than etudes are. So etudes are not open-ended at all. You know exactly what the technique is that you need to use. There's no mystery about that. You, this lesson is about multiplication. And so the technique you're going to need to use is multiplication, but it's within a more interesting context. For me, proper problem solving is where you don't know what you're going to need to use. And you've got a toolbox full yes. of techniques and you have to choose the appropriate one. Or maybe there are several possibilities and you need to think, well, I could use this, I could use that. What are the pros and cons? Um, so that for me is proper problem solving and that only works I think if you've got a well-stocked toolbox and so you get that toolbox of techniques by uh, in my model by doing lots of etudes on different topics and over a period of time you then have um, a big enough bag of tricks to be able to to tackle interesting problems and then the idea would be that the the problem there's 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 no obvious clue as to what tool you're going to use it's not the thing you've just been practicing it's not the thing we just did last week it could be something from a while back and uh, at nottingham we had this idea of the, the many year rule and the idea that there'd be mm -hmm. a few years before you would spontaneously use some tool so the tools that you've just learned in the last few weeks or maybe even the last few months are probably not ones you have that sort of fluency to select spontaneously you're going to need a prompt you need someone to say how about using this whereas stuff you've learned much longer ago and that's kind of bedded in is stuff that maybe just comes to mind and so i think my my pinnacle would be doing problem solving that relies on content from a few years ago that hopefully the fluency is there for and then you don't need to give any kind of contextual clues about what's what you need to use um, but i think we need to spend quite a lot of time on on developing fluency before that's really feasible Got it. Fantastic. Now, um, if you, I don't know if you remember, Colin, last time you were on, we spoke about, um, we were talking task design, and we spoke about Malcolm Swan, who fairly recently passed away whenever we, we recorded. Now, another great task designer sadly passed away in the last 12 months or so, which, of course, is, is Don Stewart. Um, any kind of thoughts about what you like or key features of, of Don's work? Because I'm, I'm a huge Don Stewart mm. fan, and I know Joe Morgan is as well. Just for me, his sheer quantity of stuff he put out there is just blows my mind there's there's something for every topic um, on his blog but any thoughts about Don's work that, that you wanted to share with people yeah thanks for asking that he was a genius wasn't he and I think uh, I first yeah. encountered him on my PGC actually he came and did a session on the PGCE and we had sessions from all kinds of people and there's something about when he came in I thought wow I'd never come across this guy before and his stuff it was when he was doing the median materials and he had all these lovely ideas and I um I, I thought um, when he showed something uh, near the beginning of the session, I thought oh, that's the best idea I've seen for a long time. And then five minutes later, I thought the same thing again. And <laughs> I've never, I don't think I'd ever had such a high concentration of amazing ideas within. It was probably just an hour session. I don't remember, but I was sort of couldn't write fast enough. And uh, I remember thinking, this is just the sort of tasks that I want to use um, when I become a teacher. 
and uh yeah he was he was hugely inspiring and he was so generous wasn't he to make so much yes. available i mean i think as far as i know nothing he produced ever cost anybody any money it was always no, just there no. and available and easy to use um so i think he was the absolute model of a of a genius task designer i think there are a lot of parallels between him and malcolm swan actually um i think yeah i think his legacy you know really goes on and uh, uh you know is is had a big influence on on anyone who tries to design Maths tasks. I think I think so. And if you look through some of his work, like he'll do some straightforward so-called fluency practice. There'll be stuff where it is just going through the motions, but there'll always be a little twist in there. There'll always be really careful yes. progression through the questions and so on. He'll also, and I spoke to Anne Watson about this, he'll also use principles of variation theory, but perhaps without either realizing, I don't know how familiar he was with variation theory, but he'll be he'll be using those principles just because. He knows intuitively that is the right thing to do to draw students' attention to key features. And the law was, Joe Morgan always likes the fact that by the time you finish the task, there's something clever about it. There's some relationship going on between the answers and so on. It's just, um, yeah, just just absolutely wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stuff. And I'll just point out for listeners, Anne Watson is currently doing a series of blog posts, blog posts called Dose of Don, where she takes some of Don's uh, tasks finds connections between them and presents them and it's, it's a wonderful scene. There's also a special issue um, of Mathematics in School, I think it's the May oh, issue that's yes. about to come out that is devoted to Don's work with articles from various people, so that's one to look out for as well. Fantastic, superb. Uh, right, well I want to turn our attention now, uh, just before we talk about the Lumen uh, curriculum, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, the work at Lumen in general, if that's okay. So the first thing is, you mentioned the um, CPD sessions that are freely available. Just want to talk a little bit about those, those Colin. Um, why did you choose to put those together and, and what are some of the things that are on there? Yeah, so, so Lumen started a couple of years ago and is a, is a network for um, local teachers in the Midlands, but also in London. We have um, a campus of Loughborough University in London as well. Um, and it's, it's completely free. And um, what we were doing when we began was um, face-to-face um, CPD events with, with great speakers, even your good self, and uh, they were really, really well received and teachers are really, um, really appreciative of, of them and found them very helpful. Of course, COVID then came. And so um, we decided to move everything online. And it's actually been a good opportunity because we've ended up with far more uh, contributions than we could ever have had face to face. So actually, I've got a list here. We've got 17 um, uh, wow. videos so far they're about 40 minutes long each they're all completely free to access and they're absolutely fantastic we've got uh, uh i'll just do a quick quick run through we had two from ems lord uh enrich um videos one primary one secondary we've got joe morgan on pie charts dor abrahamson on probability pete mattock on using models to make maths visible chris mcgrain on task design vicky neal with an enrichment activity for students um, uh, John Mason did two, uh, one on attention and one on using tasks richly. Danny Quinn on language use in maths. Uh, somebody called Craig Barton did one on misconceptions in factors, multiples and primes. Uh, Helen Williams did an early years one on spatial reasoning. Sue Gifford also did an early years one on pattern awareness. Hugo Lortie-Foggs did one on being a critical consumer of educational research. And Matthew Ingalls did a related one there on communicating research to teachers. Oha Chen on cognitive load theory and i did one like i mentioned on on introducing mathematical etudes and we've got loads more in the pipeline so i think it's going to be a uh, well it already is a fantastic resource so please do uh, check that out if you just google lumen and loughborough it's the first hit and uh, do do make use of that 
Yeah, it's, it's superb. It's, it's been one of the very few benefits of, of, of the COVID situation has been the wider access to both conferences and also, yeah, just CPD in general. So with that, for example, like watching some of the early years stuff blows my mind because I know absolutely nothing about it. And it seems so far out of my experience. But you always, well, whenever I speak to Helen Williams, you always get something that you think, actually, yeah, no, I could use that. And just having this opportunity to sit down with a cup of tea and just watch something that you would you would have to travel miles and probably spend a load of money to to get is is, is a real benefit isn't it yeah and i think the uh the the facility to pause things and have a think or pause and try a task yes. out for as long as you want i mean it's always hard in face-to-face sessions isn't it when you do that and you think now when do i stop everybody and you walk around looking and some people are deep in thought and other people seem to have kind of finished and they're checking their phone and you think oh it's, it's now the moment or isn't it and i think <laughs> one of the nice things with, with online stuff is that you can you can hit pause and go and have a cup of tea come back later and uh, or even just continue the video another day so uh, and being able to rewatch stuff as well when you've got really uh, ideas coming fast and and so on and think actually I'll just watch that through again so I think there's there's great opportunities and I'd love to think the teachers maybe watch them together with other with other teachers and and discuss them um, but it'd be great to have some feedback from people on what they think and what they would like to see there. Because um, uh, we have this funding from from the university to produce stuff like this. And so it'd be, be great to know what people would like to see more of um, and, and how things could be improved and made more useful. And, and as somebody who's, I guess, kind of a bit of a, I don't know, kind of a creator of, of, of this, this CPD network yourself, when things eventually go back to, I guess, normal and in inverted commas, what will be your plan there, Colin? Will you kind of mix it up a bit, have some live things, but also having seen the benefits of the this online, on-demand CPD, keep some of that in there? What do you reckon the kind of future of CPD is going forward? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, uh, these videos are not going anywhere, so they're going to be on the site forever, um, and uh, they're not going out of date. They're, they're, they're a fantastic uh, video, so they will always be there, and I think there'll be people who... Uh, that's just the most convenient form in which they can access CPD. And so that's that's great. Uh, personally, I think we miss a lot by not being in the same room together and those conversations. And uh, it's very hard to replicate that, perhaps impossible to replicate anything like that on, on the web. And so uh, yeah, I can't wait until we can actually get back and have some face-to-face events again. But perhaps we'll keep going with this. If people find it helpful, we'll keep alongside that having the, the videos and perhaps we, we'll video some of our sessions, which we hadn't done before um it's difficult because um i think speakers plan it differently and lead it differently if they know it's going to be videoed and so i think it's not a straightforward thing of just saying oh we might as well video it and put it up because as soon as you tell a speaker that's what you're doing they think oh i better do this differently because of that so i think you can sometimes lose something by making video making things videoed um so that's not a straightforward choice but i think having a parallel track of, of videos is is probably the way to go Interesting, interesting. And the only other thing I just wanted to talk about is that I've um, obviously been doing these research in action uh, interviews. And uh, now let me get my maths right here. So there was 10 in series one and you are interview six, I think, so far. So I've spoke to 15 of your colleagues before, just before speaking to you. And I'm learning so much here, uh, Colin. And the what amazes me is that the range of interest that, that your colleagues have and, and the diversity of the research. I just wonder, as as somebody who's obviously in 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 Loughborough yourself, how much opportunity is there for you to to speak to your colleagues and find out what that what they're all doing? Because 
like you've got you've got flipping dyscalculia and fish going on. You've got number lines, all this kind of stuff. Like, do you do you actively know what each other's working? Yes, on? Yes, no, I don't have a clue. I don't have time. a clue what people are doing, and so I've I've listened to all of them, and I've learned loads from it myself as well. And I've no idea what the dyscalculia and fish is all about. So I'm looking forward to, to hearing that one. So yeah, it's been an education for me to find out what people are up to. I mean, it's slightly complicated by the fact that we've had a big expansion recently that's led to our to our new center for mathematical cognition. And so we do have a lot of new colleagues, some of whom we've not spent that much time with due to COVID. Mm. And so that opportunity to sit and have lunch together and talk about what we're working on has not been there as much as it would have been. And so, yeah, you've, you've provided a very useful service for me, if, if not for <laughs> anyone else, just to find out what all my colleagues are up to. So it's, it's been really been really useful. But I think often academics don't really know what each other are doing. It can be a bit of a mm. uh, an environment sometimes where people are in their own offices and they've no idea that the person next door is doing something relevant to uh, what they're yes. doing and they're, they're looking on the web to try and find a collaborator but they're actually just down the hallway <laughs> if only they knew and I think we're really good at Loughborough and in normal times anyway at, at being a very interconnected uh, research centre because we're, we're we're unique really in being a maths education centre so everybody's doing maths education research and you're absolutely right that there's a huge diversity in terms of what people do mm. but if you go into most schools of education um that's far, far wider because maths education is just a small part of that. So previously when I've been to the yes. School of Education, there's an enormous uh, range of things that are totally outside of my uh, awareness. And so we do all have different interests, but they're very overlapping and there are loads of, of lovely interconnections. And so, uh, yeah, I think uh, we, we, we've struggled to, to make the most of that through COVID, but I think as things improve, we will, we will get more opportunity for, for those conversations and collaborations. Fantastic. Okay, Colin, well, let's turn our attention to the main thing that we're going to be talking about, which is which is this Lumen curriculum. Um, do you want to just give us a bit of an overview, Colin, of, of what it's about and, and how it came about? Yeah, so it's a, it's a pretty ambitious thing to try and do, maybe a crazy thing to try and do, but um, it felt to me like the time is right to try and do this. Um, uh, the word curriculum is perhaps a bit confusing because that means different things to different people. And um, sometimes curriculum is just a list of, of topics to be taught, maybe with some kind of order or, or timing. But what we're talking about is a fully resourced curriculum. So it will be complete teaching resources and teacher guidance materials for the entire curriculum. So that's all. Um, so we're, we're thinking of starting with Key Stage 3, seems a sensible place to start in Year 7, but ultimately, you know, if we can, can have the funding to do so, we'd like to try and develop a, a complete set of materials. So um, this would be you know, completely free, um, hosted on the university website, anyone can, can download it, and it would be editable, and that's one of the things that we think is quite important, that, that teachers, schools can adapt it. I mean, if, if you like something that's there and you're basically happy with your own curriculum, you could just copy and paste it in. Um, that's absolutely fine. But if you wanted a kind of a big change, we wanted to depart from textbooks or whatever you're, you're using, then uh, it would be complete so that you could uh, make it your, your main resource or your, your single resource. Um, and I suppose that the big USP for us would be that it would be research informed. And so we think that we're in the best place really to try and to try and do that, to put together the best quality international research evidence that we can find across not just maths education, but cognitive science, educational design, try and see. It feels like in the last you know, decades, a lot of, of research has been produced and a lot has been has been written and communicated about what we now know about how people learn. But that hasn't been applied, as far as I can see, to developing a set of, of research-informed resources that covers the whole, the whole curriculum. And that feels like a, 
an important thing to try to do. And so we're, we're going to have a go. Um, but, uh, <laughs> well, I've, I've, it is incredibly ambitious, Colin. It's, it's fascinating. And I've got a ton of questions for you on it. So uh, let, let me start with this one. Um, having worked in schools for many years and y- yourself as well, you'll know that when, when, we, are, when we say curriculum, what, what teachers often kind of take that to mean is schemes of work. That's the day-to-day kind of working of a teacher is to think of a scheme of work. So are we thinking here that this is something that could be can replace schemes of work, could be plugged into existing schemes of work? Is there like a definite kind of pathway through that a year seven would do this topic, then this topic, then this topic? Or is it something different? No, it is. I mean, it's not meant to be prescriptive in the sense that, you know, we're not trying to tell anybody what they should do, but we are going to suggest an order and sequence of everything. And obviously, if people have better ideas, then, then do it. But we think that I feel that um, designing loads of isolated tasks and saying, here's a nice task, here's a nice task, mm. actually leaves a lot of the job left undone because um, yes. somebody's got to go through all those tasks, decide which ones they want to use, put them in a sensible order, think about how they fit together. That's a, actually a huge design job in itself. And I've never really addressed that before. I've always thought of myself as a task designer. I churn out tasks now and then if anyone fancies on using them or sees an opportunity in their curriculum that's fine but I think that um, you know only schools in the most favorable circumstances really have got the capacity to spend lots of time looking at everything that's out there on the web I mean there are hundreds of thousands of of resources Mm -hmm. uh, lots of them free there are great sites like resourceaholic which which do some of the work for you but even a site like that is not trying to tell you what to do in what order. They're trying to give you lots of yes. lots of options and lots of possibilities. And so I think um, there's there's a place for having. Uh, I suppose it's a bit like an online textbook, really, that leads you through, but hopefully is of, of higher quality and more research informed than than textbooks I'm aware of in this country. And so that that offers you um, uh, the, what you need, really, in terms of uh, explanatory stuff, uh, practice material. Uh, rich problems uh, and then connects the units together in hopefully a more coherent way than than is often done because I think that that you can grab really good resources from lots of places and you've mentioned Don Stewart the Malcolm Swan there are wonderful resources but who's to say that if you take a great resource from from Don and a great resource from somewhere else and a great resource from somewhere else that putting them together is going to make a great curriculum so I I keep saying this thing where a uh, a collection of great resources is not necessarily a great collection of resources. Um, and <laughs> yes, so it might yes. be the fact that in their own right, these things are fine or, or better than fine, but that they don't actually make sense as a string of, of experiences for, for students. And so that's why I think we want to, to, rather than putting in links to lots of stuff and saying, here's a nice thing on Enrich, here's a nice thing here, mm. we want to try to, to design them from some sort of coherent standpoint so that they make sense as, as a whole. And I think that's the biggest challenge that we're that we're facing at the moment. What does coherent mean? Um, and is it a good thing? Maybe a bit of incoherence is helpful, but but what exactly is it that that will make it all fit together as a as a sensible curriculum? Wow. So right, okay. A couple of questions spring from that. So it sounds to me that order definitely does matter then. So if in your ideal world, it wouldn't be a case that a teacher would have an existing scheme of work and would just kind of grab a unit 
from your curriculum and then grab another unit from your curriculum. You would hope that to get the most out of these, it would be following the order because I, sh- I assume that you're going to be calling back to stuff that students have done previously and so on. Well, would that be fair? The orders? In- yeah, that's right. And we've tried to think carefully about how things build and connect and to build in things like retrieval practice and interleaving and so on, which only kind of works if you're going in the right order. But having said that, it may be that schools have have schemes of learning that they're really happy with and they only are interested in doing small changes in which case you know people can do whatever they want if people you know want to take stuff and, and use it however they want then then that's absolutely fine um but yeah we did designing it with the assumption that at least some schools will buy into it kind of wholesale and want to to take it through um uh, as conceived now of course when we trial it and that's the other thing about this that we don't just want to kind of come up with some ideas and then publish them we want to get evidence from schools about how they actually work or don't work in the classroom so that we can refine them and improve them i think that's a, a really important thing to say about this and that's um, one way in which it's distinct from the kind of publishing industry and their model of kind of what's been called the authorship model where somebody comes up with an idea they write it down somebody else sort of checks it looks okay and then you publish it Mm. Um, we don't want to do that we want to do a design research project where we are uh, working in partnership with schools where teachers are uh, trialing units and uh, uh, giving us detailed feedback not just what they think of it because it's quite easy to uh, we know lots of people we can send stuff to and say what do you think of this how does it look to you what we really want is people who can try it in the classroom and tell us what actually happened maybe even send a student work and say this is what the students did this is where they got stuck this is what they didn't understand that kind of thing and so i think for that to work the trialing can't be the whole thing the trialing has to be by unit and so um for that reason um we we are trying to package it in units that have kind of understandable titles like fractions or something so everybody knows what that unit's going to be and so that will make it possible for schools to swap in and out particular chunks and say well let's just see what this unit's like before we make a big decision here so again it's unlike the textbook thing where you kind of have to spend a lot of money and buy all the stuff and then only then do you discover the bits that you like or don't like and then it's too late to do anything about it with this you really can just say well we're going to try one unit in year seven and see how it goes and then uh you can make a decision later on and have another unit um or you could just you know take the plunge and do the whole thing so really we're not we, we really don't want to try and dictate to schools what they do we want to provide something that schools have have autonomy over um but we do think that where schools are in in a difficult position you've got a new head of department comes in there isn't much of a scheme of learning you mm-hmm. you just quickly need something that you can start from then we hope that it would be enough it would be enough for that and be a better solution to that than perhaps some some other solutions um and i think that tom frankham has this nice phrase he often uses uh, something to start with and then move away from and i think that's quite helpful oh, okay. that um you know if you're going to design a scheme of learning you could start with a piece a blank piece of paper and just make make it all up from from scratch and that's absolutely fine but wouldn't it be better to start with something that's at least okay or maybe good yes. and make it better and uh, make it your own tailor it to the students that you teach and the teaching styles of your department um but don't start with absolutely nothing start with something that's already had some thought gone into it 
Well, can we just talk a little bit about these these units themselves, Colin? You mentioned their kind of fractions. How how specific would would you be going with these units? If we t- would it be fractions, or would there be a unit on adding and subtracting, a unit on fractions of an amount? Well, what's it look like practically? Yes, well, we're not yet at the point where we have any units, and so <laughs> this is very much a live discussion at the moment. And in particular, things like so, if we take fractions, how are you going to split that up? Are you going to say we'll do adding and subtracting in year seven, and then in year eight we'll do mm. multiplication? and division and that might seem quite artificial or are we going to leave mixed numbers and they don't come in until a later point so there's there's an awful lot of choices here Um, and how do you build in the appropriate kind of retrieval so we're really we're really not sure about that and what size the the units are going to be and whether they're all going to be the same size or whether there'll be some smaller ones and larger ones one of the nice things about this is that we have very few hard constraints you know when you're writing for a textbook the the design of the textbook applies an awful lot of constraints to the authors so they might be told for example that you need a double page spread for every lesson and so it might be that you've got to fit your lesson into that regardless of the topic so you might have a uh, a topic about shapes where you want lots of diagrams well it doesn't matter it's still got to fit there Um, we don't have any constraints at all like that we can make the units all different sizes and shapes um, no problem and so it's it's very free, but it does mean that we have a lot of hard choices to try and make about about that sort of thing. I mean, would you want students to go a whole year not doing any fractions? Probably not. Mm. And so, but do you want to? Uh, what do you do about the fact that people have all diverged, and and some people have already you know got lots of of competence with things, and others haven't? And I think that probably the structure of the units is going to be something like quite a bit of direct kind of teaching at the start and some fluency stuff, but then some students could accelerate quite quickly through that to the more rich problems at the end that are um, hopefully uh, challenging for anybody, including me, um, to to do, but only require the knowledge of that unit. Uh, And other students would would work through more slowly and and depending on what their prior knowledge is and so on. And so um, that's the sort of model we're thinking of. And then in addition to that, there'd be some standalone problem solving units that wouldn't be based on a content. They wouldn't have a title like fractions. And these ones would depend on content from a few years previously. And they would be not just opportunities to do problem solving, not just saying, here's a nice problem, have a go at this, but actively teaching strategies for problem solving. And so I think a really important part of the curriculum will be that it's not just teaching content and then hoping that one day students will be able to put all that together to solve problems. But alongside that interspersed will be problem solving units that deliberately uh, explicitly tell students, here's a here's a problem solving strategy. Here's how you can use it on this problem. Uh, can you invent some other problems where that strategy would be useful? Um, can you look at these problems and see which strategies are going to help you and which ones aren't? from the strategies that you know, so that alongside building up the, the content toolbox, you're building up a, a problem-solving strategy toolbox as well, and those two things kind of uh, interlinked. Um, next question about these units. This is fascinating, this column, by the way. Um, I'm thinking just practically speaking, I know they're not built yet or anything like that, but if I go along and think, oh, I like the look of that unit, and I download it for, from the from the university website, Practically, what am I getting there? Is it kind of uh, Word documents, PowerPoints, Excel files, links? Yes. What, what do you envisage being Yeah, in I there? think any of those, GeoGebra files and so on, but only things that we think teachers can easily edit. So there won't be any PDF files. I suppose there might be PDFs mm. of the same files if that's more convenient, but there'll always be the source yes. file. So um, it's a bit of a controversial decision to go with Word because people kind of, anyone who knows anything about design cringes and says, oh, no, surely not. <laughs> um, but if we use something like InDesign, make it look beautiful, then 
that nobody's going to be able to do anything with that. It's just yeah. kind of get get rendered as a PDF and then it's it's stuck how it is. So we've decided to go for Word, and you can make things look quite nice in Word. And so we've we've thought a bit about how to make it look as professional as we can. But ultimately, it's got to be something where teachers can tweak it. And I think that leads to lots of interesting uh, possibilities because, for example, we're going to try and use colour um, in really significant ways. Um, for example, in an algebra, colouring different things to reflect the structure of what the mathematics is. But if you were to look at that and think, uh, I don't like that, it looks a mess, it's all different colours, it's going to be distracting, you can just select all and change it to black. Yes, and so you yes, could have yes, some yes. really interesting um, studies within schools where you say, well, I don't know if the colour's a good thing or not. I've got parallel classes. Mm-hmm. Let's just easily mm-hmm. change this and make it black for one and not for the other and see if there's any difference. And you could do lots of really interesting A-B testing like that because you can edit the, the stuff. And both files will look equally kind of professional as though it's the proper thing. Um, it's not like, you know, if you had a textbook and you thought, I'd like to do something similar to that, but with this difference, your kind of yes. uh, word version of that is going to obviously look very different from the design textbook one. But in cases like this, you could easily have two versions that both look totally reasonable and you could just trial them in, in, in parallel. And I think you could do a lot of interesting studies within schools, get some local uh, data, local evidence on what's what's working within your environment. And uh, I'd be really keen to to know what happens when people do things like that. That's very interesting. Um, ah, right. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do the do the kind of less controversial question first, Claire, and then we'll build <laughs> up to a bit of controversy. So um, well, you mentioned before that there's, there's just so many wonderful resources out there, Don Stewart, Malcolm Swan, and so on and so forth. What's um, Do they have a role in your curriculum? Are you using is – it, is it curated stuff or is it original stuff or a bit of both? Well, it's, it's very influenced by all the great design that's gone before, and so um... – we have to be honest that we don't have very many original ideas that everything all the best ideas are kind of out there somewhere um but rather than linking to already published versions of things with all the copyright problems that there are with that and the lack of editability and so on we're going to try and make our own version of everything so that it's obviously you'll see places where you think oh that's a very malcolm swan kind of task but it won't literally be one of his tasks it will be informed by that kind of approach and i think it's important that we do that so that people then you've got a copyright free version you can do anything you want with it you can put it any way you like and you don't have that problem of websites going out of date and links disappearing and getting broken so i think that's the approach that i I want us to take so if you think of lots of the famous sort of tasks that we use they exist in multiple versions on different websites and you know the busy teacher could spend a lot of time going around looking at slightly different versions of i don't know sheet pen or something on different websites and think oh that one's slightly different that one's slightly different i think we will try and look at them all and come up with a version that we think is the best we can do and then that will be a a, a new version that will be indebted to all these other versions but will be something that people can then do what they want with got it got it um right this is this is the, the, the potentially controversial but i don't know so let, let's imagine let's start, i'm going to go extreme here colin let's imagine that you, the two people you had working on this were chris bolton and andrew blair and i've chosen them because they've both been on the mm-hmm. podcast i have both huge respect for them both but they have very different views about how you would approach a topic so we would have andrew i would imagine would go down the inquiry route and chris would be very much engelman direct instruction and so on mm-hmm. now how well two i guess there's two sides to this question um are you catering with these units for both of those extremes in terms of teachers using them 
And also in terms of writing them, are you influenced by these extremes or are you trying to do a compromise? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, we've uh, written a paper recently that just came out a couple of weeks ago where we've tried to put together our design principles um, and influences and so on. And we mentioned you know, uh, the Don Stewards and Malcolm Swans and so on there. And um, I guess one of the comments from the reviewers was, um, you're, it's a very eclectic range of things that have influenced <laughs> you and how do they all going to fit together and I think some of that is going to have to come out in the wash really when we actually do it we'll have to figure it out on a on a case by case I've I've been reluctant to sort of badge the curriculum as any particular thing I don't want to say it's a such and such curriculum sure. because suddenly that's going to alienate a whole load of people unnecessarily I think yeah. and and also I think some of these labels as you look at them more closely end up merging into other things anyway and the yeah. distinctions that people get really stressed about sometimes when it comes down to it you find the two people have quite similar views on on the details and so i think um possibly if you got those two people together and tried to design a lesson together you you might find there's a lot of agreement between the kinds of things they would put in and although they would maybe talk about it in different terms uh i don't see the huge clash really between uh, different ways of working um, like that. So I don't feel we have to make any giant choice like that. I think that we, we can benefit from insights from all kinds of different kinds of traditions of teaching. Um, and I think it might vary from unit to unit as well. And I think certain approaches lend themselves really well to certain um, topics and perhaps less well to others. And I think we can reflect that throughout. But there are bound to be inconsistencies. And I think we're, we're not really aiming for a consensus curriculum. I mean, I did... When I was at Nottingham, we did for a while have the idea that maybe we would get together some great um, experts, designers and users of tasks, and they would all bring along their favorite tasks. And mm. together we would curate a, uh, a wonderful curriculum that's the best of everything that's out there. And it would be a sort of a consensus curriculum. And if anyone argued strongly for their thing to go in, we would just put it in. But I think it's not going to be like that with this curriculum because the coherence issue means that there are going to be yes. some really good lessons and really good tasks that will have no place in the curriculum, even though as a standalone mm -hmm. lesson, they'd be perfectly fine because they don't kind of fit with everything else. And so there'll be some lovely tasks that we say, surely that's going to be in there. But actually, because of choices we've made elsewhere in terms of maybe the representations that we're using or the approaches we're taking, yes. that task just doesn't fit and can't, can't go in. So I think there were, there were some hard decisions ahead. That's interesting. Um, I'm interested, you, you mentioned coherence and consistencies. I spoke to Christian Bockhoven about, about this, about the importance of coherence. This will be an interview that I'll put out before this one. So listeners will have had a chance to hear about this. Will there be consistencies within the units? I'm thinking, will there be, for example, always be a worked example? And will it always be set up in the same way? Will there always be retrieval practice? Will there always be an etude in there? Will, will there be consistencies within the unit? I think we're, at the moment we're trying to think what is the optimal amount of constraint to have, really? Because mm. if you're sitting down to write a unit, you need some constraints, otherwise what on earth do you do? But too many <laughs> yeah. constraints. And I think some of those you've got to have are probably unhelpful because if it doesn't naturally fall within what you're doing, mm. why should you have to do it? And I'd like to get away from, um, I think with textbook writing, sometimes there's like a, a series editor or someone who lays down the law in a document and says, you know, we've got to have, it's got to look right. And we're going to have this, this and this. And it might be because they don't know their authors that well. They've just 
recruited a team quite quickly and they just need to generate content quickly and they don't want someone to send in a load of stuff that's totally unsuitable and so they have to do that sort of thing and say it must be this it must be that and i think we don't have that we we can see each other every day we can talk to each other all the time and so i think we need far fewer constraints uh than you might need for a commercial project like that so i'm reluctant to say you know any of those things has to be in a certain way uh the people writing are hugely experienced and and talented and i think that uh everything's up for discussion Interesting. And one thing we haven't mentioned, of course, who, who's writing this, Colin? Who's in the team? <coughs> well, we're trying to draw on everything within the centre. I mean, we want to benefit from not just people who will write stuff, but people who've done research that can feed into this. And so um, I don't want to uh, have too tight a, uh, a limit on who's who's in it, because I think all kinds of people are going to look at drafts of things and say, oh, don't, mm. didn't you think of doing this or couldn't you, you do that? So um, I like to think of it as a whole Lumen thing, really, that everyone who's involved in Lumen has got a kind of stake in this. It might be that everybody's a bit disappointed with it in a different way, and it might be uh, <laughs> that, that it's not anybody's total dream of how it would look. Yes. And also, I think it might not be the curriculum any of us would teach because... Um, uh, we might do things in quite idiosyncratic ways that would only work for us. And what we're trying mm -hmm. to design is a curriculum that could work for, for a broad range of, of teachers and schools and so on. So it might not be the thing that, that is exactly what anybody envisages, but hopefully it will be something that schools will, uh, will like. Um, just two other questions about the usage of this. Um, one is, I know obviously Tom Frankham uh, would be would be heavily involved uh, in this, and Tom is a, a big proponent of mixed attainment teaching. Would this unit be would would the curriculum be equally aimed at uh, setted and mixed attainment as well, or is there is there a kind of preference to to the model of uh, of structure there? Yeah, I think it's a decision for schools really, and I'm keen that the curriculum doesn't kind of. Uh, smuggle in our views on different things in an inappropriate way and so I kind of think there are lots of decisions schools have to take about how they use stuff and uh, I don't think that our curriculum I, I, I'd like us to be agnostic about as many things as we can be agnostic about and mm. uh, let schools do whatever they uh, whatever they need to do and I think those questions things like mixed ability and and so on are questions that are very contextual and depend on the teachers and the school and all kinds of factors and uh, I don't think that we should try and uh, dictate any of that stuff. But you could imagine a unit being used as much with a top set or a bottom set or mixed attainment. You, you're designing it in a way to be kind of as accessible yes. to all. Would that be yeah, exactly. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Um, right. Let's go a bit more controversial as mm -hmm. well, Colin. Now, I've spoke to Joe Morgan on the podcast in the past about how key stage three is often undervalued a little bit in schools because of constraints of... of maths departments and so on, you, you've got so much kind of teacher expertise and often your so-called better teachers will get put on the key stage four classes because that's the GCSE classes and so on. And often year seven, year eight, maybe split classes, they may have non-specialist teaching them and so on. Now, this is obviously a key stage three curriculum in, in, in the initial stages of, of this, the initial release of this. Is there a certain amount of teacher expertise required to get the most out of this? I, I'm, I'm guessing it's not the kind of thing you can just download and without having looked at it or without having a certain amount of knowledge, kind of get make make the most out of it if, if that comes to comes if that makes sense. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is the teacher support and the teacher guidance. Actually, I think writing stuff for kids and making up tasks and uh, 
so on is, I mean, it's obviously very challenging, but I think figuring out what would be useful for teachers to have as the kind of accompanying document mm-hmm. or documents or, or whether it should be a hyperlinked page or whatever it is, um, I think that's really, really difficult. Um, and I suppose what I've been thinking about recently is um, that a lot of my uh, design work in the past was on tasks. And that meant that because it wasn't a complete curriculum that I was designing, I could cherry pick what I wrote tasks on. And some things are very easy to write nice kind of rich tasks on. Um, and some things are harder. And if I look back over the tasks I've written over the years, they cluster around certain areas and uh, kind of avoid other areas. And that wasn't a deliberate thing. But with a curriculum, we can't do that. You've got to do everything, like a teacher who, who has to teach everything. And I also think of that within lesson sequences as well. There's uh, a lot of my design work has been on the kind of tasks that maybe come towards the end of a of a unit and are kind of rich mm. uh, tasks. And that's yes. why then I went for the etudes, which maybe come towards the middle of a unit. But then what about the start of a unit? If you're a new mm. teacher and you've got to teach some topic, maybe it's not doesn't seem like the most thrilling topic in the world. I don't know. I was, I was thinking about talking about standard form, actually, because it's a topic that probably is nobody's favourite topic as an exciting, thrilling topic. <laughs> um, but if you're a new teacher and you've got to teach that, how are you going to explain it? How are you going to introduce it? How are you going to start that unit? And I'm not sure that as a, as a designer of educational stuff, I've ever really helped very much with that phase of the lesson. Mm. And, and so with the curriculum, I've been thinking a bit about lesson introductions and how they might work. And that's a sort of a new area for me to think about designing. And, and, and I'd be interested what you think about whether this is useful or not. But I've been thinking about things like, uh, if you want to introduce a topic and the stuff the kids need to know, um, if you look at what textbooks do, they tend to sort of state it as a definition and they tend to start, okay, so uh, this is what it is. And then you apply it a bit like you know, in a university course, that's that's the standard thing, isn't it? You begin with the definition. Uh, but I imagine imagining how teachers actually introduce something like standard form. And I don't think teachers do that. I mean, imagine this is this is definitely what you wouldn't do, isn't it? You wouldn't go into a classroom and say, "Okay, uh, morning, everyone. We're going to do a new thing that you need to know about. And this is called standard form." And uh, basically, uh, you write a number as, as two numbers with a multiplication in between, and it has to be a multiplication. It can't be addition or subtraction or anything. And then the first number has to be between one and 10, but it can't actually be 10, but it can actually be one. Um, and it doesn't have to be a whole number. It can be decimal or something like that. And then you have the multiplication sign, and then you have another number, and that has to be 10 to the power of something. And it has to be 10. It can't be any other number there. And the thing that there's in, in the index, that has to be an integer. It can be a positive integer or a negative integer or zero. Um, uh, but it can't be a decimal, whereas that first number before the multiplication can be a decimal. Does that make sense? You know, you imagine the kids would be, we say, what on earth is, is this? Is this a proper topic? Are we going to be tested on this? Is this in the exam? I don't understand this. So no teacher, I think, would explain standard form like that, would they? Um, but when you're writing a book, it's tempting to begin by saying a number is in standard form. If it's like this, here's a load of numbers, which ones are in standard form, which ones aren't. Yeah. And if you look for tasks on the web, I had a little look for the tasks on standard form. There's lots of nice tasks around, you know, estimating um, uh, big numbers. There's nice things to do with, you know, matching tasks, matching ordering numbers that are in standard form and not standard form and so on. But they're all tasks that you need to already know what standard form is before you can do them. So these are all the tasks that in a sense are easy to design once kids know about it. But what about that beginning of the lesson? How are kids going to find out what standard form is? And so I was thinking, well, what did I do when I was teaching? And I suppose the sort of thing I would do is I would go in and say, 
does anyone know what the mass of the earth is nobody would know or can you estimate it roughly how big and and students say things like you know millions of tons or something which is not even close and then i would say well i looked it up before the lesson actually and this is the mass of the earth and then i'd write uh, six and then i'd put uh, 24 zeros after it and i'd write them all out on the board and i'd not be very careful exactly how big or small the zeros were so it was a bit scruffy and it nice. sort of went along in a line um and uh, put kilograms at the end and then i'd say now uh, there's another planet in the solar system jupiter does anyone think that's uh, got more mass than the earth or less mass and you know, they wouldn't know, but some students might have seen cartoon pictures of the solar system and they've seen that Jupiter is enormous. And so they, they'd say, oh, Jupiter's really big. But then I'd point out, well, it's, it's, it's big. Um, it's about 10 times the diameter of the Earth, but it's a gas planet. And so uh, whereas the Earth's made of stuff like, like rock and so on. And so actually maybe all you know is that it's big, not that it's necessarily very massive. And so then they sort of start to argue a bit. So then I'd say, well, okay, this is the, the mass of Jupiter. And, I'd, and I'd, I'd write it on the board, but I'd be careful not to put the first digit underneath, directly underneath the six yes. of the Earth. I'd maybe go a bit to the left, and then I'd write two, and then 27 zeros all the way along, and I'd squash them up quite a lot so it finished well before yeah. the end of the of the, the Earth one, then put kilograms. And I'd say, so which one do you think is bigger? And then they think, well, you've squashed them up to try and trick this. And then I'd say, or maybe you, I've done that <laughs> deliberately to make you think that. And, it's a double blah. and so there'd be this sort of arguing. And then I'd say, and they'd be sort of trying to count the little zeros and pointing from, with their finger, but they can't quite count yes, them all. And yes. someone would say, can I come up to the board? And I'd say, no, 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 stay in your seat. And uh, then I'd say, well, you're all fussing a lot about these zeros, but but haven't you you noticed this one starts with a six and this one starts with a two? So isn't that telling us which one's bigger? And then mm. some people would say, oh, yeah, of course. And other people would say, no, 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 that's, <laughs> that's not right. It's the zeros that matter. And you're getting into the sort of discussion about what it is that, that determines whether something's big or not. And then I'd say, well, what would, what would help here? And then they say things like, well, you need to do it on a square board and write one digit in each square and do it neatly. Mm. Uh, or you need to leave commas or spaces every three digits or something to make it easy to compare. Um, and then I'd say, well, uh, how do you think I remembered these numbers? Do you think I remembered six, zero, 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 zero? zero? No, of course not. <laughs> and so I'd write down on the board the number six, and then I'd write the words followed by, and then I'd write the number 24, and then I'd write zeros as a word, and then underneath I'd write two followed by 27 zeros. And then I'd ask them which one's bigger. And it's, it's a short distance from that to get to the point where actually it makes mm -hmm. total sense to collect all the powers of 10 together in part of the number and leave the other bit. Yes. And it's not so much like we have a rule I mean, you can say that standard forms an arbitrary thing in Dave Hewitt's terms as arbitrary and necessary. You can say, well, you could have mm. defined it all sorts of ways. It's arbitrary in that sense, but it's not arbitrary in the sense that it's totally random. It makes an awful lot of sense to do it that way, and it would be kind of ridiculous to do it any other way. Instead of having 10 to the power of something, you could have 7 to the power of something, but it'd be ridiculous to do that. And so I think an introduction like that is, is the sort of way I would do it, and I think a lot of teachers would. But how on earth do you write that down? If you want, if you think that's a good approach um, to beginning standard form, how do you put that in some kind of document that a teacher who's maybe never taught standard form before could use? And I think that's a real challenge. I mean, I've I've taken a few minutes there outlining to you how I might go about it, but there's loads of little subtleties like starting the number a bit to the left and deliberately yes. winding it round. And there's no way you can print all that out on a piece of paper and give it to a child and say, "There, do that." It wouldn't work. It has to be live. I don't think you can even put it on a PowerPoint 
it doesn't have the same kind of impact as doing it live yeah, in the lesson. Yeah, so there are quite a few topics, I think, where you can begin with this kind of live, almost like a performance, really. And yes. uh, it, it, you can't video it and just play it back. It has to be there in the classroom. But how do you help the teacher who's never done anything like that and who would like to do that? Uh, if you write it out as a teacher guidance document, it's hundreds of words. No one's going to have time to read that. Yes. And even if they yes. did, how can they possibly remember it all when they've just been teaching three lessons previously and suddenly the kids yes. come in? So it's an unsolved problem for me, but it feels like this is a part of educational design I've never really thought about before. And I don't think exists anywhere. I mean, you know the the the, 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 the what's out there better than I do, but what do you think? It's fascinating. It's it's well, a couple of things on that. First, I think it's absolutely fascinating. I, I think you're right. I think it's the most underlooked part of lesson planning. It's it's probably because it's the hardest. Uh, the fun bit is designing the fun tasks when kids have got a bit of knowledge. The easy bit is designing a bit of kind of fluency, disconnected practice. The hard bit is is how you introduce things, something. And, and back in when I first started teaching, the go-to was find a real-life context. That was the only way you, you, you were told to do it. But as we know, it's very, very difficult to find useful real-life contacts that actually mean something to kids and so on. And um, what strikes me is about that is it reminds me of Dan Mayer's headache aspirin model. And I really like that. I think that's always my go-to now. So for, for listeners who aren't aware, before presenting kids with something, show them the purpose of it by saying, okay, what would the world be like if this thing didn't exist? So in Colin's brilliant analogy there with standard form, if we didn't have standard form, we would be stuck forever writing down zeros. There's the headache. So now once kids have experienced that, here comes the aspirin, which is standard form. So the more I think of the headache aspirin, the more I think it can be applied to probably, I'm reluctant to say the majority, but certainly a decent amount of mathematical concepts. And it tends to be my go-to for, for introducing. But yeah, as, as to how you kind of convey that in an accessible way, particularly to a non-specialist or a busy teacher, mm. difficult calling that, but it's definitely the right thing to do. Yeah, definitely. Whew. It's interesting you say it's yeah, the it hardest bit, because I think often it's the bit that people perhaps spend the least time thinking about because you get all yeah, your resources yeah. together, you get your your sheets and whatever, and then you think, oh, I'll just explain at the beginning what they have to do. And it's almost like yes. explaining the task, but this is more than explaining the task. This is kind of introducing yeah, a, a new idea, a new concept. And I think that um, probably any experienced teacher can just get up and say, okay, let me explain standard form. But I think that there's something... Uh, if you have the luxury of spending time to think about the details of it and I've you know I've chosen Earth and Jupiter and their masses and there's quite a bit of there's lots of other options there but I've chosen those because well for lots of reasons that you can probably guess and, and in terms of being able to do things like saying how much bigger is this and is it three bigger or is it a thousand bigger and those sorts yes. of things um, I think it's quite a good example I'm sure there are other examples people would come up with but I, I don't think on the spur of the moment I could come up with an example that was was good at all. And so I think there's some value in designing this sort of stuff and seeing it as a design challenge. But I don't quite know how to bottle it in terms of put it into some format that's usable by anybody else. That is interesting. That is a challenge, Colin. I'm going to ponder <laughs> that myself. Um, we've only got a few minutes left, unfortunately, before sure. I have your next colleague to interview. So I've just got a couple more questions, if it's okay. And it's related to uh, exactly what we're speaking about there. Whenever I'm lucky enough to offer CPD and stuff, it's one thing kind of offering CPD to experienced teachers. It's quite another when you're talking to less experienced teachers or um, teachers who don't have a specialty in maths and so on and so forth. And I find two things 
that less experienced teachers really struggle with in terms of planning are thinking about what prerequisite knowledge is that students need to have to give them the best chance to learn this new idea that they're going to be, be teaching, um, and also where kids are likely to go wrong, mistakes and misconceptions that kids may make. And I think both of those kind of come with experience, particularly mistakes and misconceptions. The more you teach kids, the more you see where they're likely to go wrong. So in terms of prerequisite knowledge for each unit and in terms of mistakes and misconceptions for each unit, will, will they play any part in the curriculum? College? Yeah, very much. I mean, I think um, you could imagine that people might link the curriculum to all sorts of other resources, like maybe like diagnostic questions. And it would be wonderful um, if people did that so that there were there were clear links between things like that. I think with the misconceptions, for me, there's two types. There's the misconceptions that are a bit kind of off the wall and that the teacher has to struggle to figure out what on earth is going on here. And then there are the standard ones that we all know and see all the time. And I suppose with those ones, I will just assume that everybody has them. It seems to me the safest thing to do is assume even if they don't demonstrate them today, so you might give them a test and yeah. they don't fall into that trap today. Who knows? They might do tomorrow. And so it's a kind of inoculation thing. Whereas I think there are certain things that uh, everybody's going to be tempted to do, even if they don't do it at this moment. So I almost don't need to know whether it doesn't give me any extra information to find out whether they are going to fall into that trap today or not. I want to address that and make it a, a specific thing. And so in the curriculum, we, we, we're going to use concept cartoons a lot where there's two uh, uh fictional students with speech bubbles uh, saying things that aren't right or, or are right and then kind of why is why is this person wrong or why is this person yes. right and so I think that I want to foreground the misconceptions like that and and deal with them up front rather than waiting to discover whether anyone happens to have them or mm. not um, I think that there are certain things which are also people call misconceptions but which are kind of almost necessary points on the journey they're not things where something's gone slightly wrong or somebody's got the wrong end of the stick they're things which you can't really imagine not having so yeah. like multiplication makes things bigger it's hard to see how anyone could learn maths and not go through a stage of thinking that yes and so those yes. things are almost they're not problems that have to be fixed they're things that you should expect along the way and work with and so i think we'd write those in as as kind of parts of the journey there's still things that teachers need to be aware of though i think i think that's my point you could have it goes but like if, if you're a less experienced teacher but you've always been good at math yourself you may not be able to remember a time when you didn't realize multiplication could make things smaller i think it's the lack of explicitness of these problems that often causes less experienced teachers issues if that makes yes, sense. yes but i think you can foreground that for the teacher as well as for the students by having it yeah. in a cartoon you know somebody's done a calculation that's a multiplication and the answer's smaller than the number they started with and they say i must have gone wrong and then you know yes. is 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 craig right or not and uh, you get a discussion about that and i think that if the teacher hadn't particularly thought of that themselves the task kind of forces everyone to to address it i agree and what about the prerequisites colin well will that will that come into play at all yeah, I think it's really difficult because, um, I mean, one of the aspects of coherence is that everything should follow on, but obviously people mm. forget things. And so the fact that something has been taught before doesn't mean that anybody today necessarily knows it or or sees its its relevance. And so I think it's, it's a case of building in all those uh, discussions which draw on previous stuff and, and ask you to explicitly make the connections. I think... Um, I think it's unhelpful to assume that stuff is there and just assume that because something came uh, previously that therefore it's going to be available now. I think we've constantly got to check and ask and and 
I think that connections to people who are experts, it's a curse of knowledge thing, isn't it? But connections just seem often quite so obvious. You can immediately think of three or four connections to anything. But those have got to be not just hoped that students will, will see them, but I think explicitly discussed and addressed so that they're taught as, as things. So it's a bit like if you have all those blobs of knowledge and the connections of the lines joining them up, it's not just the blobs that need teaching, it's the lines that you need to teach as well. Yes, yes. Oof, it's a flipping big job, this Colin. <laughs> hey, getting this, getting this right, but yeah, as you say, it's it, it's got to be better than starting with nothing. And it blows my mind that every year when I hear about teachers spending summer term rewriting schemes of work from scratch and so on, like starting with something like this that has got an evidence base, has been well resourced. Even if you don't think it's perfect or, or you change things, it's a starting point. So if nothing else, it's going to save teachers hundreds of hours. And hopefully with the team you've got on board and the thought that's going to go into this, it's, it's going to be super yeah, I hope so. I mean, there is a slight worry. What if you're just deprofessionalizing teachers? What if um, doing this is a really valuable professional development activity that you're then taking away from teachers? And I think my response to that is that I'm not taking anything away because no one has to use this. This is, this is something mm. that's been provided. If you prefer not to use it, that's absolutely fine. But I think that that value um, uh can be the value of the professional development time can be more in uh discussing what's there and improving it and uh rather than uh all that time that teachers spend searching for stuff and trying to find things and uh looking for bits that will fit and finding lots of stuff that's kind of okay but doesn't quite fit that doesn't seem to me a good use of professional development time and better to have a starting point and and talk about how you would use it with the class or or why you wouldn't use it and what you would use instead just seems a uh, a better use of that time it's so precious the professional development time that teachers have i agree i agree well colin as i say we we could we could speak for hours and hours but i'm blaming you for this the schedule <laughs> that you've put me on here it means another colleague of yours is going to appear on my screen in a few minutes so we'll leave it there but this hopefully won't be the last time you're on sure. the show colin because i always find it really uh, so colin foster thank you so much for thank your you time. it's been a real pleasure thank you craig So there you have it. There was my interview with the wonderful Colin Foster. I really hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. As I said in my intro, I just really like speaking to Colin and listening to him uh, whenever there's an opportunity. So it was a real pleasure and an honor to get to spend an hour or so with him uh, for this podcast. And a massive thanks, just in case I forget to say it at the end, for Colin for helping me put together both series one and series two. He's super organized, is Colin. He didn't didn't just send me through a schedule. He sent me background on on all the guests, uh, their areas of interest and so on, which has been really helpful in, in the planning and delivering of this um, research in action series so a big thank you to Colin there um, so in these takeaways I mean we talked about loads of things throughout the interview I could spend ages speaking about Don Stewart um, I could spend ages speaking about my thoughts on understanding and so on but I think I've covered both of those in, in, in previous um, episodes anytime Joe Morgan's on the show we can't help speaking about Don and, and understanding something that, that comes up tons of times so instead what I wanted to focus on um, in these takeaways is, is writing a curriculum the um, kind of inspired by Colin and Tom Frankham and Dave Hewitt's work on, on the Lumen curriculum, 
but also just some recent experiences um, I've had. Now, I'm recording this podcast uh, towards the end of June 2021, and I know that it's this time of year when year 11s have left, year 13s have left, uh, possibly teachers have gained time, and I'm putting gained in massive inverted commas. I'll tell you what, by the way, <laughs> just before I go into this, I was speaking to a teacher uh, recently in a school that I was visiting, and I, I've been, uh, when did I start teaching now? I always forget this, it's terrible, maybe 17 years ago, something ridiculous like this. I was explaining to him that when we uh, when we had game time, like around this time of year, game time really did used to mean game time. I remember playing tennis. I cannot believe this now, right? I remember playing tennis when I should have had year 11s, once year 11s had gone. And, and sometimes, like, I'd have a day where maybe I'd have one lesson in the afternoon. It was flipping tennis all morning or just messing around, like, you know, doing quizzes on the computer and all sorts. You just, that is, just seems like a different world. The guy's face when I was telling him this, he was a little bit younger than me. He was horrified. And then he started telling me about all the things he's got to do in his game time. And I'll tell you what, tennis was uh, was not one of them. I got really good at tennis uh, back in those days. Anyway, um, as I say, it's this this kind of this time of year when often teachers' attention in this so-called game time is turned towards planning for, planning for next year. And one of those things is, that inevitably happens is teachers look at their schemes of work and either make tweaks to them or completely overhaul them. So um, I thought it was worth just kind of reflecting on that and just kind of planning in general, because I, th I think Colin, had, the conversation I had with Colin certainly sparked in me a lot, a lot of thoughts about planning sequences of lessons, what makes a good sequence of lessons, what are your kind of bankers, that you, are you, the kind of key aspects you need to include and so on and so forth. So, and also, God, this is a bit of a preamble, this, before I get to my main point. Uh, I've been visiting a, a few schools recently, which has been really nice for me because I haven't been able to do uh, much face-to-face -face stuff, obviously, for the last uh, 12, 15 months and so. And I've been reviewing quite a few schemes of work and, and curriculum that, that uh, maths departments have been using. And one thing I've noticed, and you'll be pleased to know I'm getting to my point now, um, is that you get this kind of classic thing where, um, well, I'll give you a concrete example here. I, I saw a year, year eight scheme of work um, and it was a, a school that did setting, and I think there was kind of three three groups of sets. So there was kind of uh, set one and two followed one scheme of work, three and four followed another, and five followed uh, set five followed another. I might be getting that slightly wrong, but it was that was the general sense of it. And if you looked at one of those units in the year eight scheme of work, and um, one was called sequences. And in that unit, everyone was doing sequences for, for a couple of weeks. Now, that's the first thing I wanted to say, regardless of your views on kind of mixed attainment or setting. If you are teaching setting, it's super useful if at least everybody's following the same kind of general unit at the same time. It just makes collaboration, planning, set movements, all that kind of thing much, much simpler than if kind of one group's doing, you know, data analysis and another group's doing sequences. It just becomes a bit of a nightmare. But what was interesting is if you looked at the set five um, scheme of work, uh, the, the kind of lesson objectives or statements for this particular unit on sequences, it did things like recognize number sequences, continue number sequences, and I think it was kind of starting to touch on nth term, maybe from patterns and so on. But then if you looked at the set one and two scheme of work, their statements were exactly the same, but then obviously they had a load on top of that. So you had things like, you know, use and apply the nth term rule, right up to quadratic sequences. I was like flipping heck and I, I was just asking uh, the head of department and the, and the second department who wrote the scheme what, what the thinking was there and they said they wanted to make sure challenge was was included within their schemes of work and I see this a lot you know um, I, and, and I've, I've done this myself when writing schemes of work thinking that the way to challenge the way to differentiate is to just kind of 
give harder maths in you know in theory like find more challenging topics to add on top and what 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 happens of course is that the the um the higher sets they go further through a particular topic covering more ground covering more statements covering more objectives and so on but I'm not sure that they end up with that much more understanding because inevitably what happens is you have to go over that stuff again in year nine and again in year 10 and, and so on and so forth. So the point I was trying to make when working with this school, and it's a point I try to make a lot, but it's, again, it, it doesn't always kind of, I don't know whether I'm, <laughs> probably my messaging's not the best in the world, is that the challenge can come from the depth within the topic as opposed to the breadth. And I think that you can come up with a task or an activity um, on, let's say, linear sequences. Let's just use that one. That um, a so-called bottom set, year eight, could access, but also would challenge, you know, the, the, the highest achieving year 11 or even a year 12 or a year 13. And um, those tasks are, are like gold dust, but they're out there. They're, they're, they're all over the show. So Colin, um, with his mathematical etudes, um, is, is an absolute classic example of, of a task where the depth is within the task. It's not just the kind of the topic that the task's covering. Uh, Don Stewart, some of his wonderful tasks um, are, are absolutely perfect for this. And I think this sounds dead cocky, but my um, maths vens, my Venn diagram activities, I think are good for this. So the sequences is a really interesting example. One, one of my favorite triple Venn diagram activities for sequences, you've got, um, you've got your three obviously intersecting circles to make the Venn diagram and the labels on the circle are something like um, ascending sequence is one of the circles, um, contains a multiple of four is another, and starts with a 10 is another sequence. And that's a, and the, the students have to fill in uh, the various regions on that Venn diagram. And that's something that you don't need any knowledge of nth term to be able to just kind of write some number sequences that would fit into each of those eighth region, eight regions. But if you do have this knowledge of nth terms, it becomes incredibly challenging, particularly when you start asking questions like, what's the most interesting example that you can find to fit in this particular region? Can you come up with another example and so on and so forth? So that's the first thing I just wanted to say about kind of schemes of work in general. It's, it's, it's always worth reviewing your scheme of work, I think, and, and just asking yourself, can I take out a statement? Can I take out this extra objective? and just spend more time and go deeper into the ones that are already there. I always think less is more when it comes to when it comes to schemes of work. And it just means that kids understand it more, they get more variety within their lessons and they retain it more. Um, the other massive advantage of, of doing things like that, of, of kind of filling your scheme up with these kind of common tasks, and, and the kind of, kind of cliche way to describe them is, is um, low floor high ce high ceiling yeah it's good to get that the right way around i think i got that the wrong way around by the way coming up with an interview with tom frankham i think i described tasks as um high floor low ceiling which is kind of the opposite of, of what you want but you've got that to look forward to in a couple of episodes time but if you can have these tasks within within schemes of work it just makes collaboration so much easier it just means that in your departmental meetings or when you're just chatting over coffee to somebody uh, one of you one of your maths colleagues you've both been doing the same task with your class so you can say what worked what didn't work what will you do next time or when you're planning it you can think you can come up with common questions that you're going to ask and and, and so on but what i often see in schemes of work is that these tasks these so-called rich tasks are tucked away you know in column k of an excel spreadsheet if, if the schema works on excel and 
teachers never get to them because they're in kind of a race to get through these objectives. And if, as I say, if we can just reduce the objectives, reduce the statements and, and almost make these tasks compulsory, I know that's not a great word to, to be using, I just think it means that the teaching just gets better, the kids' learning experience gets better and, and, and so on. So anyway, I'm going to be talking more about that when I talk to Tom Frankham in a few episodes time because we talk about mixed attainment teaching and that's when there really is this need to have these tasks that are accessible to, to, to all students. Um, so yeah, something to look forward to hopefully with that one. Um, so I think those kind of tasks, they're a, they're a banker. They need to be in any scheme of work and, and staff need support with them. And as I said, that's why you know the collaboration really helps if, if all staff are doing similar tasks and activities. I also think um, some kind of retrieval schedule, well-planned out retrieval schedule um, is really important in a scheme of work or curriculum. Otherwise, you get, this you get this dangerous cycle where you teach something, the kids get it, they then forget it because it isn't revisited again, perhaps till the end of the year or the end of term assessment. And then they need reteaching it again in either that year or the next year or the year after and so on. And this cycle, teach it, they get it, they forget it, you teach it again, just becomes a nightmare. And that's why we run out of time um, in terms of trying to fit everything in because we're having to reteach stuff over and over again. And I think a well thought out retrieval schedule can, can really work for this. Uh, in my Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain book and in my online courses, I talk about the four ingredients of retrieval these four opportunities to help kids remember stuff that they once knew and their starters, low stakes quizzes, mixed topic homeworks and, and interweaving within future learning episodes. And I very rarely see that kind of thing in, in schemes of work, this well-planned out retrieval schedule. It's very much that teachers kind of make up their own starter activities or their own low stakes quizzes based on the, the needs of their class. But the problem you get there is you, you, you very rarely get full curriculum coverage. Very rarely in a starter do you see things like enlargement or do you see things like, um, let's have a think, um, anything, a graph work, stuff that requires um, you, have to, you have to hand out materials or kids to have certain equipment with them and so on. And what, what tends to happen is that these retrieval opportunities tend to be focused on the number stuff and the, the algebra stuff, the stuff that's a little bit easier to, to come up with questions with and the kids don't need much with them when they're answering them. And the problem you get with that is that the stuff that isn't included in the retrieval opportunities just gets forgotten. So I think a well-planned out retrieval schedule where full curriculum coverage is there and um, teachers ensure that topics bubble up time and time again just means that time's going to be saved so much in the long run. But I bang on about this where, you know, if you've heard me talk about low stakes quizzes and interleaving and so on, you, you, yeah, you, you know my thoughts on this. And if you want to know more, as I say, my course on four ingredients of retrieval um, is, is available, my online course, if you're interested in that. And the final thing I just wanted to say that I think are, are bankers are prerequisite knowledge. So um, some guidance to teachers as to what the prerequisites are before teaching um, a new unit of work or trying to build new knowledge on. Because we know that if the foundations are shaky, students are gonna struggle. And in a similar vein, um, some kind of idea of what the common misconceptions are that students are likely to have uh, when, when encountering a new idea. And the prerequisites and misconceptions are fairly obvious to experienced teachers, but in my experience, and I've certainly experienced this personally myself, but also when I work with less experienced teachers, they're the two things that teachers, the, the so-called novice teachers, find the hardest to kind of predict what, what, or, or figure out what is the prerequisite knowledge um, and what are the common misconceptions students are likely to have. Prerequisites is hard, to kind of em empathize with and figure out um, be if you're less experienced because 
it's kind of the curse of knowledge thing. You know all the prerequisites, so it's it's quite hard to think, well, unpick your own knowledge to think what it's built upon, if that makes sense. And similarly, misconceptions are tricky because by the time you're teaching stuff, you probably don't have any misconceptions, certainly in the basic areas of mathematics. So once again, it becomes hard, hard to unpick what those misconceptions might be and so on. So, so that built into schemes of work and curriculum, prerequisites and misconceptions, um, but not just kind of as a token add-on, but something that's a fundamental part of it and that, that, that colleagues talk about, collaborate and, and staff have support on, I think is really important as well. Um, and often... This will be the last thing I say about this, and this has just been, been kind of common experience I've had, particularly over the last couple of weeks, is that, um, again, teachers, Mark McCourt spoke about this, teachers spend so many hours tweaking their schemes of work each year, rewriting their schemes of work and so on. And often you get this kind of sunk cost uh, fallacy where you think, well, I've put so many hours into this scheme of work. Um, and perhaps even over years and so many colleagues have been involved that I don't want to just abandon it. I just, I can make it better. I can do it. And it's just a kind of constant tweaking and constant changing. And the thing is, if you're building it upon shaky foundations, um, then it's potentially problematic. And often teachers say to me, well, I've got all the assessment materials uh, ready for this scheme of work. No way am I going to be writing them again. So let's just see if I can change it. Let's chuck a task in here. Let's remove that there. Whereas sometimes it's it's good to say, no, actually, this isn't working as well as we wanted to. Let's start again. But I don't mean start again by writing one yourself from the start. Just just taking one of the ones that's already out there. Now, I've, I've no affiliation with White Rose. I'm certainly not being paid to say this. But um, if if teachers ever say to me, look, I, I, want, I want to start afresh with a good key stage three scheme of work or even key stage four scheme of work, I'll often say, look, just start with right rows. Have a look at it. Have a look at the materials and so on. Tweak if you need to. If you need to slot in stuff that you do that you think is important, go with that. But I, th I think there's there's so many good stuff out there that's that's freely available to in the large part. There's add-ons that you can buy that are premium and so on. That there's no point kind of two or three members of staff, you know, a head of department, second department, spending hours in game time. And then it obviously bubbles over into summer holidays doing this scheme of work. Whenever there's so much good stuff out there, start with that and then tweak, tweak if needed. I think works well. And that's what makes me so excited about the forthcoming Lumen maths curriculum. I think that's going to be absolutely fascinating because you've got some really good people working on that um, and you're going to have some absolute cracking tasks and stuff. I've also um, had a bit of a sneak preview of the work that Cambridge is doing on their curriculum. That's got potential to be absolutely brilliant. Um, I think OUP are working on something. There's some amazing stuff uh, kind of going on at the moment. So yeah, have a look what's out there, I think, before you um, before either tweaking your own or certainly before starting rewriting something from scratch. Anyway, flipping egg, I have babbled on far too long here. It's one of the longest takeaways of this series, but Colin always leaves me with, with tons of stuff to think about. So all that remains for me to do is thank Colin Foster, my uh, lovely guest for this. Um, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And the biggest thank you, of course, to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning in. Hope you're enjoying this series. Only a few more to go, but I'll tell you what, whew, we've got some absolute crackers. I think there's three left uh, before the summer. And it just keeps, yeah, uh, yeah, there's just some real big insights, real real different interviews coming up. We've got executive function, we've got uh, comparative judgment, and then we've got mixed attainment. So that's all coming to a podcast near you. Anyway, you take care. Thanks so much for listening, and bye for now.